In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, so tonight, uh, tonight we enter into the section of the text of uh, how to actually do Vipassana meditation. What we've all been waiting for anxiously. And the problem is, is that until... Um, Until you achieve some exhaustion in shamatha, uh, the vipassana will remain a description, a verbal description. So, I encourage you to focus your shamatha practice diligently and precisely, and use one technique. Don't try a lot of different techniques don't do a lot of different practices do one practice primarily don't play around with the gaze find one gaze primarily and stick with that ideally or um, I suggest somewhere between 45 degrees and 90 degrees midway place your gaze there Bring it in closer and then open it and we'll go through an exercise on how to open the gaze from the readings today. And give up expectation and hope of achieving and go through the various stages of boredom. Experience your habitual patterns initially fascinated by them I'm sorry initially plagued by them then fascinated by them and then bored be bored by them and think about the uh, the the nuance and the technique that I've been uh, suggesting in the meditation sessions where you establish a large um, sphere, I've been calling it, a large sense of awareness. So that thoughts, disturbances, occurrence happens within that. And there's less of a sense of being drawn away from here 
to there by distraction. As opposed to initially, we have a very sort of close establishment of mindfulness focused on our body and our breath and our thoughts, but sort of uh, almost a, 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 a very tight physical perimeter around our body. Naturally, that's how we begin. And in that beginning phase, thoughts occur and we feel like we've left our body. We're vacant, we're somewhere else. And then the fog clears or somebody makes a noise or some, some noise happens or something brings us back into mindfulness and it's like we come back. Almost like waking up when we wake up from a dream. We're like, we come back into our body. And so gradually, if you're able to uh, understand and experience this larger sphere of awareness, there won't be the sense of being pulled away and then jolting back. But thoughts will happen. Distractions will happen within that sphere of awareness. And you'll be um, in this experience of having two things going on at the same time. There's really many things, but two main things. One is like you're meditating and you're thinking. And you can see yourself deciding whether to go with the thought or not. Gradually coming to this this place where you're uh, rather um, more continuously happy to be just meditating, just here in a relaxed, open way. And you're noticing what's going on. You're aware, as Rinpoche calls it, of what's going on in you and around you without it disturbing you, without it pulling you away. But it, it's not like thinking, as the text we've been reading describe, that knowing has a very subtle labeling that goes on, recognition that goes on of what's happening. And that quality of knowing, that recognition quality is extremely important. That's the key to transitioning to Vipassana. Transitioning to Vipassana um, includes or requires or um, consists of um, using that knowing quality to then look at where am I? What is my mind? What is it that's meditating? What's happening? What is me? Understanding meanness. Understanding meanness and my thoughts. Me and my, and my world. Meanness and my emotions. My thoughts, my world, my emotions. 
understanding that sense of meanness that's with us all the time, the first noble truth, this thing that's always there. So until your panoramic awareness meditation state takes up the project of exploring the meanness, it remains shamatha. And to the extent that you're able, willing, to explore the sense of meanness, the root of samsara, the root of being bound to the cycle of cause and effect in samsara, to that extent then your meditation becomes vipassana. And if it gets too um, sort of clunky, like, oh, looking for the me, looking for the I, where and you begin to think a lot about it, that's analytical. That's, that's become overly analytical. So then relax that and drop back into your body and the technique of shamatha. And initially there'll be this sort of back and forth quality of like I'm in shamatha and then I'm looking and then the looking gets too sort of dualistic. And then, I'm, then you drop that and you're back in shamatha. And gradually there's a lightness to the process, the looking. And it's not as separated from the stillness. And you're able to experience some of the things that Rimshe talks about in these readings. He talks about, uh, there's this one interesting, there's a lot of interesting, sorry, things in it. <laughs> one of the many interesting things he talks about is this feeling of all pervasiveness. Um, what did he say? Like, like butter, like, like, like a, like, a cream. Uh, like cream, thank you. Like cream. So that's that experience of the all-pervadingness of the of the knowingness. The, your awareness begins to expand once you're comfortable with the, the mindfulness, the precision techniques. Your awareness begins to expand around the thoughts, around the technique, and fills some space. And often it is because we're so fixated to the uh, structures of the world that we believe it's truly existent. It has a sense of filling the physical, the space I, uh, identified by physical structures that we're in, i.e. the room. And it has a sense of there being this uh, uh, thickness to, to the space in that space and the sense of moving through that thickness like it's cream and then there's there becomes more of an effortless quality of it where when you then open 
relax, it's there and it comes to you. And as many of these readings said, you can get sucked into that and sort of uh, revel in that, which is pleasant, but remains shamatha. Or you can use the energy of that experience to create clarity. Clarity doesn't mean light, doesn't mean luminous, has nothing to do with light bulbs. Clarity means knowing quality of mind. And so you you begin to learn how to um, experience and increase clarity. And initially the clarity looks out. And then when you're able or remember or want to, you then take that clarity and look in. Where's my mind? What is my mind? Where's my looker? Where am I? And uh, so this class will do like a little, goes to like a sort of like how to generally. And then uh, I think next class we go through the stages of the progression. Let's see. Uh, once again, of course, I forgot to number the pages, but I'm going to show them on the screen anyway. So, let's see. And here, here is you know, I just took this, the root verse, and I just parsed it. The way to meditate is to analyze selflessness. So there were a couple of readings in, in towards the end by Rimshev. What is the self? What is selflessness? What is he talking about? Because uh, as we saw in the readings, it's a given that you have to understand that. You know, one reading after another starts with, you must understand the view of emptiness, of egolessness. And otherwise, you're going to meditate on uh, some self-created sense of um, what you think exists. So you have to understand what uh, egolessness is, the absence of there being a controlling entity in the midst of our five skandhas. And that boils down to the awareness, our awareness, our consciousness. We all think that we're our awareness. So it means looking carefully at, am I my awareness? And so throughout your day, throughout your life, seeing, am I my awareness? If I'm able to look at my awareness, who's looking and who's being looked at? And when I feel angry. Is that me? Or is the awareness of the anger me? When I feel uh, insulted and the sense of self arises, is that me? Or is the awareness me? 
awareness changes. We go to sleep. Does the self disappear? <laughs> and then it, the self reappears. When you wake up, what if you wake up without the self knowing that you woke up like by surprise and the self is still off somewhere else and you wake up and you're without a self. And then uh, there's just a little mention of it, but there's the, uh, the uh, emptiness of the world around us. There's the emptiness of ourself, our ego, and then there's the emptiness of the world around us. And uh, there's this phrase of uh, seeing the absence of true, real existence of all phenomena. If something truly exists, then it's not a mere uh, fabrication produced by putting things together. Like the way we make chairs, we put together different pieces of wood and we create a chair. So the chairs are not truly existent because they're dependent upon their parts. Anything that is dependent upon parts is not truly existent. Anything that's created is not truly existent. So you quickly understand that nothing is truly existent, and yet we, we have this very strong innate fixation on the world being truly existent. And so you come, may come across this way of describing the situation as being when, when things are not analyzed and when things are analyzed. When things are not analyzed, the phenomenal world operates seamlessly. And when we analyze the phenomenal world carefully, it falls apart. And there is no really, no truly existent phenomenal world. So that was a little summary of Madhyamaka 101. <laughs> or maybe 0 0.00001. But maybe maybe uh, enough to whet your appetite. Anyway, so analyzing selflessness by means of prajna. Prajna has the three phases of hearing, contemplating and meditating. Hearing is, you know, looking at the word. What does the word mean? What is the self and what is the absence of a self? Contemplating is where do I feel this sense of self? How does it feel? Does it feel different in different times and, and situations? Is that logical? Is my sense of self logical? And then looking with prajna in meditation, looking at where is the sense of self? And thereby we cut through misconceptions regarding the object's qualities. In this case, the object is self, the self. We have this misconception that the self is real and that the self is me, I am myself, and that this self is uh, in control of what I do and think and experience and is the enjoyer of experiences and so forth. We see that, uh, that the illogical nature of that projection or the projection quality of that experience of the self. And so then we rest, we let it go and rest in a state free from mental fabrications. 
So we search for who's meditating, where's the looker, where's my mind. We can't really find it. And then we let go. And we see, what does it feel like to not have that projection of there being a looker as the reference point? Not having that continuous reference point. We see if we can rest in it. And um, honestly, I think, I think when we talk about resting in that, realistically speaking, we're talking about a fraction of a second, maybe. And really the exercise is seeing the self re-arise. Because that's what happens. We have a little gap and then we're back. Oh, I'm resting. We think we're resting in selflessness. And of course, that's the self thinking that. So seeing the self really arise from that gap is essential. Um, let's see. The actual meditation on Vipassana, non-analytical and analytical images. Bizarre terms. Very confusing terms. Not not to uh, fixate on. Even though I'm going to give you some explanation of it to the best of my humble abilities. And I know from my own personal experience of doubting this explanation for many, many years that all of you will doubt and think there's something more. But anyway, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the course that I met with Trollic Rimshe ask him about this particular phrase. Like, what does this mean? I sent him an email with the text in it because he was a, he's an emailing Rimshe, which is not all Rimshe's are emailable. <laughs> but he was. He was very cool that way. And uh, I, he responded and we met in this little diner on Upper East Side somewhere and um, So I asked him about this, this, uh, this text. I said I wanted. I was hoping we could talk about this text on meditation by John McConshaw, Blah blah blah. And he's like, "Oh, you know, somebody just sent me this text." <laughs> you know, so clearly he was pointing out my ego right at that moment. Right? He really knew that it was me, and he was just like flattening. You know, I thought like, oh, <laughs> anyway, whatever. He said, um, he said, these images, non-analytical images, it's like whatever thoughts you have in your mind. So like you think, like in particular, you know, we talk about, we meditate on, on here. What do we meditate on when we do shamatha? Anybody? Have you guys ever done shamatha? What do you meditate on? Breath. Thank you. <laughs> the breath. So like, what is the breath? The breath is a non-analytical image. It's a, it's a, this general idea. I had the word general because that's how this term is translated. And that's a mistake that I said that actually. It's just an idea. 
the breath is an idea. You know, we looked at this also, this thing by Rimshay where he, called, where he talks about the psychosomatic body, the projection of the body that we have in our mind. So the, the projection of our body that our mind experiences is, is a non-analytical image. Not actually the thing out there. Or in the thing here, body. And the breath, the breath is not a definable thing. You know, does it have a, uh, does it have an outline? Is there an outline of the breath? Where does the breath begin and end? Is there a starting point and ending point? You know, so we have this idea that there's a thing called the breath or a thing called the body. And these are non-analytical images because they're ideas. Images are ideas in our mind. And they're non-analytical because we've accepted them without analyzing them. We just use these terms. World, universe, person, dog, love, hate. We, we have these concepts that... Um, we then apply to a large range of actual experiences. And these are non-analytical images. Analytical images are when you then take that non-analytical image and you look at it in the way I just, in ways such as those I just suggested, you say, you know, does it have a size or a shape or a place or a color? Um, where does it come from? Where does it go? And you start to look at it and then you analyze it. So we start with non-analytical images and then we analyze them. We focus on them with individual discriminating knowledge, which again, weird term, but we see it over and over again. This knowledge which discriminates in the sense of identifying the object of knowledge in terms of its identifying characteristics. How do we identify one thing from another? You look around your room and you don't just see one thing. You see numerous things and you identify the separateness of those things by their shape and their size and their color. And you project an immediate knowledge of them having different substances that they're made out of and uses and names and so forth and histories and futures. And uh, so instead of, instead of uh, using discriminating knowledge to uh, analyze all breaths or all bodies. We focus on this idea of breath with knowledge that discriminates the individual breaths, so to speak, that we breathe moment after moment. So in a sense, we're comparing the actual individual uh, instances of a category of objects that make up that category. Initially, we identify a category, breath is a category, and then we look at the individual uh, manifestations of that. So we look at, oh, 
What does it mean to have a long breath or a deep breath or a short breath? When I don't even know what breath is. So we examine through perfect discriminating knowledge. We examine, um, in particular, we examine, how do I identify an object? What is what we call the basis of designation? When I, when I identify a chair, I've designated the idea of chair and I've projected it onto its basis of designation, which is the parts of the chair, the seat, the legs, the back. And so we examine the process of designation through perfect discriminating knowledge and see that the projection of things happens in our mind, this overlay onto onto um, experience that comes in through the, our senses or through our mental apparatus. And thereby we ascertain the lack of inherent existence. We see that um, there's this phrase that is used that things don't really exist from their own side. The chair is not asserting itself as a chair. I'm asserting that it's a chair. There's no real chairness. The chair is just a, a conceptual label that's applied to what I consider to be an appropriate support. And the difference between a chair and a stool you know, things blend. You take off one leg of a chair, is it a stool? Or is it still a chair? Take off two legs. And so we begin to see the, the facade of the world and the conceptual overlay that creates the facade. And then nothing truly inherently really exists on its own. but all things, things being objects that we've cut out of the mass of the rest of the matrix of atoms and electrons whizzing around. And we've sort of pulled it out from the rest and said, oh, that's a whatever. So then undistractedly realizing mere appearance. So, so then we're left in this state of seeing how there's, um, there's a basis for designation and the projection. And they're totally different things. And the basis is completely ineffable and unknowable from, a, from conceptual mind, by conceptual mind. Anyway, so <laughs> that was just my little feeble attempt to walk you through this. The way to meditate is to analyze selflessness by means of spirit knowledge. We just went through this. Anyway, if one has no understanding of the view of selflessness, whatever type of meditation one may do will be mistaken with respect to suchness. 
therefore it's necessary to establish the view. So, as I was trying to explain, establishing the view means outside of meditation, studying what is the self of a person, is the projection of an owner onto the skandhas. What are the skandhas? Studying the skandhas, studying the, the process of projection, objectification, designation and so forth. On the other hand, even though one may have an intellectual understanding of the view, okay, so we go through that process and we learn all the reasonings of the Madhyamaka of uh, causation and effect and S entity and interdependence and so on. The relationship between a self and the skandhas is being same or different or owning or part of and so forth which are all the traditional ways of analyzing these two. So we get very good at that. If we don't rest within the understanding, suchness will not have been meditated on. And he gives all these examples of how, you know, sort of wasteful this is. That once you understand this, you need to actually enter it into meditation so that it, it actually changes behavior. Otherwise, it, it actually becomes an enhancement to ego. Oh, I know all that stuff, you know. There's that whole thing. I really understand emptiness and I can argue with people and explain it and other people are, you know, silly. They don't understand it and so forth. Therefore, one first analyzes selflessness by means of prajna and then rests within the sphere of complete freedom from mental fabrications. Letting go. That's a, that's a fancy way of setting, letting, saying letting go. Furthermore, if the ability to rest in equipoise decreases due to a sense of analytical meditation, one should emphasize stabilizing and thus restore the abiding aspect. So if it gets too analytical, come back to shamatha and establish, reestablish the cream. <laughs> Disraeli gears. One should, uh, let's see. If one loses interest in analysis due to too much stabilizing, you know, it's really pleasant swimming in that cream. But you have to rouse yourself to go back to analytical meditation. Thus, shamatha and vipassana are, to be, are most effective when harmonized. Here, we're analyzing the object of meditation by means of discriminating knowledge and then resting in a state free of mental fabrications. And this is common to all systems of tenets, meaning it's common to the Hinayana. So our Theravon buddies and friends, colleagues, when they do talk about doing Vipassana meditation, if they actually know what they're doing, they're looking at the three marks of existence, impermanence, suffering and essencelessness of every moment or some object. And by doing that, they're then hopefully letting go of the clinging to those phenomena and so forth. According to the Gelug tradition, this is a little <laughs> interesting clarification that in the Gelug tradition, and there's this uh, age-old uh, little discussion that goes on with our friends in 
the uh, our siblings in the gay luke tradition about how to do this type of meditation and in their tradition during this phase of equipoise where you've let go of in our tradition you've let go of mental fabrications in their tradition the mode of apprehending the object is repeatedly brought to mind so they're not really that that much into the letting go and resting phase they're a little bit obsessive and they just keep applying the analysis it's their system and they'll swear by it <laughs> the actual meditation when meditating on shamatha due to the concentration of mind many images appear which may or may not be similar to what is found in the external world you know i think this phrase due to the concentration of mind makes you think oh come on it's something more than what he just talked about there's something special that arises in shamatha because of the concentration so let me try to preserve my point of view because that's the most important thing is to defend your own point of view and um i think that means but uh i beg your insight that um you know in shamatha when we do shamatha practice things get a little bit exaggerated i don't know maybe it's just me has anyone else experienced that hmm. we're like you know things seem important that later don't seem that important and memories and reflections and stuff you know you have these ideas that seem great at the time you know if you've ever done the process of writing them down you look at them later and you're like really <laughs> i think that's what he's talking about you know when we're in shamatha things are sort of uh highlighted or what are they called hyper anyway these are known as not analytical images in the practice of vipassana as well such images arise due to the force of the shamatha and are then taken as the basis for individual analysis thus the analysis is not actually actually directed towards the outside so when we talk about analyzing emptiness of phenomena we're not actually analyzing the the seat that you're sitting on we're analyzing our projection of this thing called seat cushion chair whatever um derek yes ma'am but um couldn't you also be analyzing mental events as their phenomena also right yeah for sure i think he says that he think i think he brings up the uh the example of anger yeah so i'm so. not quite sure i understand um the point here i mean there's these these thoughts these are mental events and they arise abide and cease and we can look at that too. No. Sure. Yes, <laughs> sure. And so uh those are images. Yeah. Emotions, those are images. Anger, impatience, boredom, irritation, relaxation, bliss, whatever. 
When analyzing these images, focus on each individually with discriminating knowledge. When we, when we try to deal with our world as a whole, it's very overwhelming. You know, like during this time period, you know, talking with friends, people are like, oh, it's just like endless and, and just sort of overwhelming. And we're like, well, it, is it, you know, that work is really intense or family is intense or relationships or being, you know, and the, most people are like, well, it's just sort of everything. And when you do that, it sort of diff becomes difficult to work with because everything is huge and it also doesn't exist. So you've created a non-existent problem that everything is overwhelming. But when you start looking at each part of it, okay, let's take them one at a time. You have a problem with this and you work on it. Anyway, similar sort of thing. Without identifying particular objects, it's not possible to cut through misconceptions regarding our projection of things as being real. Therefore, one begins by clearly bringing to mind the object regarding which one wishes to eliminate misconceptions. And by the way, instead of, uh, you know, starting with uh, chairs and tables and working your way up to animals and uh, going through the animal kingdom step by step, we cut to the chase, i.e. we focus on the self, the mind, its relationship to the self. And then we proceed to examine it through uh, prajna, thus ascertaining its lack of inherent existence, then grasping the object, this non-analytical non image, undistractedly one should realize it's being mere appearance, empty of inherent existence. So we, we analyze the self and then we look at it and we see it as being this reflection, this mere projection. And once we brought together meditation and wisdom in understanding selflessness so meditation and wisdom have the same object of observation, the absence of entityness. Let's see. I've used up a whole lot of time. So um, let's skip around a little bit. He emphasizes if we don't, if we have, uh, no, okay, to summarize, summaries are always good. To develop the view of the absence of self, one has to meditate, one needs to study first the teachings of selflessness then analyze and contemplate them so that one can develop a definite understanding of the view of selflessness. Then one rests one's mind on that, focused in that view, but in a completely relaxed state. This is like the union of stability of mind and insight, the union of shamatha and vipassana. 
thereby one is balancing analytical meditation that develops clarity of mind with stability of mind. And he talks about, you know, this is uh, the, the whole balance between these two. One must relax the mind in a non-analytical state of meditation. <clears throat> but too much non-analytical meditation, too much chamacha diminishes the clarity of mind. One begins to sink into dullness. So then one, uh, so one then does repeated analytical meditation to regain one's balance. Developing both clarity and stability makes the mind very powerful. So clarity from analytical meditation. As I mentioned before, when one has developed shamatha meditation, many different kinds of thoughts and images from internal and external events appear in the mind. Memories, sensations, plans, hopes and fears, emotions, mental events. These are called unexamined images. This means that they're not external, but just the appearance of things, images that arise in the mind. Now, they keep saying this word images all over and over again, which implies a visual image. But you sh we should understand that when they use this term image, they're talking about the uh, representation of a phenomena that occurs in the mind, a mental representation. So it could be, of, it could be uh, a representation of an emotion, a memory, a hope, a fear. Um, or a, a sound, smell, taste, touch, as well as visual object. In Vipassana, one takes these images and analyzes them to develop conviction they have no true existence of their own. The mind is turned inward. We don't look at a pillar and say, this pillar has no reality. Instead, we examine whatever appears in the mind and sees that it has no existence of its own. So we we analyze the idea of a pillar and we see that there's really no relationship between the our idea of pillar and this tall thing, you know, sort of a, uh, elongated horizontal or vertical thing in front of us. What one needs in this meditation is discriminating knowledge that all things are seen as distinct from each other. We're not going for like everything is one here. We're going for the opposite. We're analyzing, we're understanding the way that conceptual mind separates phenomena, creates divisions in phenomena that are not valid. We need discriminated knowledge in meditation becomes one needs to be able to focus on particular objects. Nothing becomes mixed or overlapping, so things don't turn out to be vague and distinct or unclear. We can also do this on the mind poisons or neutral thoughts, all sorts of different thoughts. And here's a little preview of the stages, which was sort of good. We examine the internal understanding of the indivisibility of emptiness and awareness and the external understanding of the indivisibility of emptiness and appearance. The internal understanding. So uh, 
he doesn't really mean internal understanding and external understanding. That's not a great translation. He means the understanding of the of the um, indivisibility of emptiness and the sense of awareness as being uh, an internal phenomena. Well, not really the sense, but the indivisibility of emptiness and awareness, which is an internal phenomena, the perceiver. And the understanding of the indivisibility of emptiness and external appearance. This knowledge understands the indivisibility of phenomena and their emptiness. So that one realizes uh, that the discriminating knowledge itself has no reality because there's a tendency to objectify my understanding. Oh, wow, I have this wisdom that sees. I've developed the wisdom eye. And so then we see the emptiness of that wisdom, that understanding, and thereby the mind rests in the perceiver. I'm sorry, the object. Uh, let's see, has no reality. One realizes the discriminating knowledge itself has no reality, so that the mind then rests in the percept, the perceiver, and the understanding of these two. I think he's trying to say, or the translator is trying to translate that. One then rests in understanding that uh, the supposed difference between the percept and the perceiver, the perceiver and the object, is unreal. And then he gives this analogy of rubbing two sticks together to make a fire and that burn up the sticks in the same way the understanding of emptiness and awareness and emptiness and appearance. All of these have the nature of emptiness, which again is sort of a clunky translation, but uh, the idea is that the uh, use concepts to burn up concepts. We basically create the concept of emptiness of self and phenomena, and then we burn up that concept of, of emptiness. And then it becomes a real experience as opposed to a concept. Then he references Atisha, and we'll read the text that he's referring to in the next class. Okay, interesting uh, presentation here from uh, the third Comptroller Rinpoche and the Royal Seal. Is a helpful, um, was there a question, comment, suggestion? Just go for it, please, because I, I can't see all, I can only see four of you on the side. Mary Beth. I had to unmute. I was going to say something, but hand was quicker than unmute i just this um so we create the concept of emptiness and then we have to i guess the step between creating the concept of emptiness and then like actually experiencing what emptiness is do we we burn up we burn up the concept is that like, it's not as harsh as destroying it. We're not trying to destroy the concept. 
That's too harsh. That is very harsh. It's something very harsh. Doesn't have to be that aggressive. Okay. Uh, But, but uh, you know, there's there's this uh, underlying sense that you can't destroy things that don't exist. But you also can't experience the emptiness until you let go of the concept of the emptiness. No, no, that's nice language, letting go. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a a step that certain traditions talk about a a huge amount, and other traditions don't really talk about that much, but it does come up in all traditions, this idea that in order to to experience emptiness, in order to be free from samsara we have to understand the emptiness of self and phenomena and to do that we have to understand it conceptually first and so we create a conceptual understanding and the conceptual understanding is not what liberates us from samsara the actual direct experience of absence is what liberates us. So the calm set is a stepping stone, and you know sometimes they use this analogy of the finger pointing at the moon. You know, we're pointing at the moon. The moon is actual emptiness, but we tend to get fixated on the fi- finger, which is the description of emptiness or the understanding of emptiness. But it's sort of like you you can't let go of something you never had. So you, you have to have that concept and sort of understand that concept before you let go of it or you're... Well not- said. Yeah, you have to understand how are we deluded. That's a very important point. That's why we look at the sense of self. If we don't understand what the sense of self is, it's very difficult to experience selflessness. We have to understand, look at, analyze the sense of self. And so, uh, in in many, in a couple, at least a couple of our classes, we've come across these places where Rinpoche says, you actually have to sort of strengthen the sense of self, the sense of dualistic experience of me and other. And in this one, there's the reading on me and my emotions. We have to understand the meanness that's there all the time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Every time we practice Vipassana, we investigate with discerning prajna. Some people in whom shamatha stillness is very intense, due to that stillness, they don't ascertain the point, no matter how hard they try, because they favor the stillness. They, they have this subtle uh, dislike for the analysis. And they think that the stillness is it. Just as they start to analyze the samadhi of shamatha arise, and they're convinced that all the points in investigation are resolved right then. They don't have to go further. Thus, their vision of the essence becomes diluted. Others have a very strong experience of nothingness. And due to this, the lack of essential nature of all phenomena appears as that experience of nothingness. Taking that as the essence, they are also diluted. For a while, they should apply methods for removing that shamatha experience, and they're clinging to it. What an interesting thing to say. Remove the shamatha experience and the clinging to it. It's like shamatha becomes a habitual reaction of just going back into shamatha instead of actually looking for the root of samsara. Yeah. 
Derek. Yes, sir. Derek. Yes, hey, sir. Um, regarding this, then, is there, um, like, for a beginning meditator, is there some sort of timely? Because it sounds like people that you you know you can be taught to uh, try to get this stability through shamatha, but then that that can be like you're describing here a habit that you have to undo almost as soon as you learn it, learn it. So how long, what do you, I'm unsure what to tell a student in that way of, okay, let's just, let's just do shamatha for two weeks and then let, let's start doing Vipassana. <laughs> yeah, does it make any sense or? Well, if you told them the truth, they would probably go away, you know, like if you told them it's really going to take 15 to 20 years, they probably would not come what? back. <laughs> 15 to 20 years to do battle between shamatha and Vipassana and realize you shouldn't have done either. But but if you tell people, you know, it's a few years, ah, yeah. then it's a little bit manageable. <laughs> a few years of that 40-minute daily that... The That's right, that 40-minute. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's right. No, but I mean, so, okay, so seriously, you the um, the shamatha thing should be done exclusively for a, a a good long time, or well, when when you say exclusively, I think you're meaning exclusive of vipassana, and yeah. the presentation from the tradition is saying you can't do actual vipassana, meditative vipassana, until you have shamatha. You can do uh, uh, post meditative vipassana. Establishing the view, listening and contemplating the Dharma from day, you know, without even meditating, you can do that. But for Vipassana to arise in meditation is uh, not something that you can do initially. It, it, you can't force it to arise until you've experienced a certain level of shamatha. And I understand this is very different than, than the way that it's taught in certain traditions, um, you know, where, oh, we're doing Shamatha Vipassana, and Vipassana is described as panoramic awareness. And there's, there's no clarity, there's no knowing quality of knowing, knowing clearly the reference point, the projector. So it's better it's better to actually focus people on shamatha than to to uh, um, sort of give them this idea of vipassana that will then disturb what otherwise might be a, a very helpful focus on shamatha by telling them about about a, an idea of what vipassana is that maybe is not that correct or helpful. Okay, thank you. Could you, oh, yeah, could you explain co <laughs> It says realization of co-emergence. Who's who is that? Who said that? Uh, you mean who wrote it, or it's Brock? Who's it's Brock. Brock. Damn you, Brock. <laughs> 
Co-emergence. Where does it say co-emergence? Right at the top of the, it's in the title. It's a guidebook for the realization of co-emergence. I see. Well, that in happens. the royal seal of the Mahamudra. Yeah, that happens in volume two. We're in volume one. Not important. <laughs> okay, never mind. Never mind. Maybe it's not important. Co-emergence is the idea that delusion and uh, wisdom are uh, simultaneously present and available, which is the whole idea of Vajrayana, that you don't have to get rid of delusion in order to experience wisdom, that they're, they're co-present, co-emergent. So we, we learn that there is wisdom in, in delusion, and, there, and then delusion disappears. That's co-emergence. Whereas in, this, in the sutra tradition, you know, we identify the delusion as the belief in a self, and we have to eradicate it. In the, or what is it? Eliminate, eradicate, and control. I was watching Dr. Fauci, obviously, right? And we're trying, to, you know, first there's controlling the delusion. Right, you know, we shamata, we be good boys and girls who discipline, and, and then we try to eliminate its arising. You know, don't let the delusion arise when you're in public because it's embarrassing. You know. <laughs> anyway, uh, enough for that. But yeah, so coemergence. That's Vajrayana idea of uh, of Vajrayana. It's the continuity of of in in Vajra mind, enlightened mind from uh, beginning to end. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's see. So anyway, these are various ways of uh, misunderstanding and um, some silly people like me have great observations and they don't see the essence no matter how much they investigate for 15 years like I did or actually 25 years for some time they should exert themselves in purification you know so this is the traditional approach is like if you're not getting anywhere in understanding reality you do more offering practices generosity and prostrations and things like that some people are very intelligent, and so they have a good understanding, and they think that they they uh, regard the understanding as experience. Maybe they're maybe they're eloquent, and uh, but they have very little experience. And you know, so I've let, read a lot of books, but I have zero experience. So I pretend to be able to explain these things and just parroting, you know, what I read. Maybe helpfully or not, but anyway, so um, it's it's helpful to distinguish between these, no matter how good a meditation maybe if Vipassana is not dawned, it's not Vipassana. So um, let's see, to what degree must it have arisen to be considered Vipassana? The unmistaken Vipassana that is directly realized, the truth of dharmata, i.e. the emptiness of self and dharmas, comes only at the time or the stage, really, of the greater level of the yoga of simplicity. Now, if you have your little uh, uh, path can, uh, apps on your phone, you know, that little app that you have that converts different systems 
of stages of the path to other stages you know pull out open up that app and look at you know four stages of four yogas of mahamudra there's one pointedness simplicity one taste and non-meditation are the four stages and then there's the five paths of uh, accumulation preparation seeing meditation and no more learning so how do you mesh those together he's saying that um the true vipassana happens at the path of seeing when enlightenment where you actually experience emptiness directly as opposed to through conceptual inference and that that's equivalent to the greater stage of the yoga of simplicity anyway all i'm doing is pretending to know things in our case however we're only concerned with the vipassana that arises in the beginner's mind thank god what a relief, like he's going to talk to me. And he gives this wonderful analogy of the moon. And, um, and then he says, however, as followers of the practice lineage, we acknowledge the following beginners of Apashna. The essence of one's mind is an unidentifiable void. That's, a, that's an important phrase. An un, you know, the word void is not great. We say emptiness or absence, but it's unidentifiable. That's the problem with emptiness and what makes emptiness so hard to understand is that you can't identify it. It's sort of like by definition, it doesn't have any identifying characteristics. It's empty of characteristics. And therefore, you can't see it. And uh, yet the only way to see it is to look for it. So... Um, the mind, the essence of the mind is emptiness. It's the primordial cognizance that has not been fabricated in the mind that is aware of itself and lucid, clear by itself. These two, the emptiness and the cognizance are inseparable. And this is the nature of mind and reality is the inseparability of emptiness or absence of entityness and um, knowingness, wisdom gain the experience that the mind has ascertained that as a beginner's vipassana. So to the extent that we can understand that, we have a glimmer of vipassana. The true nature of reality is the nature of the mind, and that nature is without nature, but knows that it's without nature, to put it in a sort of slightly different way. Um, at the time of resting in shamatha that which rests or watches whether there is stillness or not and so forth is precisely this vipassana except for the fact that it somehow does not see itself act the discursive thoughts at the time of ordinary being really this means at the time of being a, a non-enlightened being which proliferate as a concrete chain, he's talking about me, or none other than Vipassana itself manifesting as discursive thoughts. The experiences of Shamatha are also none other than Vipassana cognizance arising as bliss, clarity, and non-thought, and all the rest. Nevertheless, to maintain stillness alone without knowing the original face, cool phrase, a bare non-conceptual mind does not become a cause for enlightenment. 
So from seeing the original face onward, and this is a Zen phrase. I don't know quite what he's translating, but uh, seeing the original, the the, the un, usually I, th I think this is like unborn nature, whatever onward. There's nothing whatsoever that does not become Vipassana or Mahamudra. Oh, oh, you're just going to throw that in? Vipassana and Mahamudra are like the same? Sorry, but I hope you weren't upset by that. So, you know, the key part is like, is that that which rests or watches, whether there's stillness and so forth, is Vipassana. You know, so we've seen in other places where they've defined shamatha and vipassana, these traditional texts, and they say shamatha is, is when the mind is still, and this, and then vipassana is the nature of that still mind. Vipassana is understanding the nature of mind. Because the nature of mind is the nature of reality. You know, in the sutra tradition, there's more emphasis on understanding the nature of reality, of this absence of self and phenomena. But in the Vajrayana tradition, we sort of cut to the chase, and that all of that is focused in our mind. We believe everything exists from our mind. So we focus on the root of, this, of the whole situation is our mind. And that's what this guy says here. In brief, since the troubles of samsara and the virtues of nirvana depend on the mind or arise from the mind, it's crucial that we focus on our mind in meditation. This is different than the shaman, the sutra tradition. And this is what the Vidyana Chopra Mishe is following. He's focusing on the mind. We don't do extensive analysis on the skandhas, the other five skandhas form, feeling, perception, and formation. We focus on the mind. We don't do extensive analysis of uh, external phenomena. We focus on the mind. Here's a little exercise that I encourage you to try at home on your own. It's probably safe to do on your own at home. Of like uh, the way it's presented by this gentleman, Ken McLeod, or McLeod, Cloud, something, um, is that it's like it's a it's a exercise or uh, a technique that you could use in meditation that that raises the energy level so that you can do the the uh, the type of looking that consists of that vipassana consists in in order to experience the clarity and the knowing quality that makes up vipassana you need to arouse your energy so that you don't sink into the pleasurable, cream-like experience of shamatha. And so this, this little process that he describes is, uh, is, a, is a very helpful, I found to be a very helpful way of doing that, where, where basically you start with your visual sense and you focus in on a small area 
and uh, I find it helpful to do um, not actually in front of a, 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 an opening the way he's describing in a window or an open door, but it's just like looking at the other side of the room, the wall in front of you, wherever you are, and you pick a little square, something that's like blocked out by some like uh, some uh, aspect of the wall or something hanging on the wall, and you get a, a small square and you focus intently on that entire square so that you're seeing the full squareness without seeing any object within that square. And then you expand the frames of that square. You start with like a foot, make it three foot, and spend like a minute or two on each size, and then six foot, and then, you know, flip to the full wall. And then open up completely, 180 degrees, the full perimeter of your visual field. Having this like television-like quality where you're seeing this, everything is like a screen. You're experiencing, you're sort of uh, undermining the binocular visual projection that our eyes create for our visual cortex. Our visual cortex creates this illusion of uh, uh, perspective, three dimensions. But really, there's just this flat projection of, ret of uh, uh, retinal cells, cells on the retina that project into a, you know this matrix of cells in our visual cortex, and we have this illusion of spatial dimension. So you're relaxing that and just experiencing this flat surface of visual field, without getting caught by any part of it and then collapse back down again and do it again and do it a couple of times two, three times in a progression and then see if you can immediately like open up and as he says if you're doing it correctly it actually creates a, you'll feel a shift and then you rest in that shift there's an immediate tendency to try to hold that open that fully open space and that shift so be aware of that and relax it. Let it be there as opposed to trying to hold it there. You relax and a pleasurable feeling pervades your body and mind. And he calls it ecstatic practice, which maybe I'm not doing it right, but I think is a little bit of a stretch to call it ecstasy. Or maybe I have a different sense of what ecstasy is, but... Uh, it's just this slight pleasurable sensation of uh, of the cream. It's like a way to experience the cream as an energized experience. It's like it's like you've entered a, an electrode into the cream. You're you're uh, electrocuting yourself here in the bathtub, and you put the hair dryer in, and it's like. Zzz. You don't electrocute, you know, it's not intense. It's just like this slight pleasurable sensation of being present, like vividly present. And then he's, he's recommends, uh, oh, he gives this great, this 
description. You know, then you can see every drop of water and you see every leaf and you see every blade of grass. No exaggeration, of course. <laughs> and uh, but then he, you know, says use the other senses and try this with at least sound. You know, and listen to just you know your house or the street or you guys in New York. You can. It's a, it's a good place to do this one or listen to some music. See if you can tell the different pieces of, of uh, different instruments rather and then the whole thing and so forth so that's a very helpful little preparatory practice to, to raise your energy level so that you can shift from that pleasurable state of, of uh, shamatha to have the energy for insight So I'm a little bit late tonight, so maybe uh, we might have to sort of merge classes and expand once again. Uh, but let's see, Ribshe. So he stresses that uh, Vipassana practice is about knowing the knowledge of egolessness. The awareness that develops through Vipassana brings non-existence of yourself. So he gives sort of two points of view on this relationship between Vipassana and understanding egolessness. In the first one, there's an implication um, of uh, that you have to understand egolessness in order to experience it. And the other one, he, and it's not, it's not explicit. That's a little bit of my projection maybe. But then there's, the next one is a little more clear that it develops out of Vipassana. You know, so the understanding, the experience or whatever, the wisdom of, of uh, egolessness or selflessness. Because you develop an understanding of non-existence of yourself, therefore you're freer to relate with the phenomenal world and, then, and gradually experience the emptiness of that. Unless there's no basic center, one cannot develop the Vipassana experience. On a practical level, this means that Vipassana is experiencing a sense of the environment, sense of space as the meditator practices. And this is called awareness as opposed to mindfulness. So it's a little bit unclear, but uh, he says, okay, sense of the environment, sense of space. Hold on a second. Um, So his technique that he's given for shifting into Vipassana is he presents this panoramic awareness and more or less clearly then he's, he's more or less, sometimes more, some, often less clear that there's like a next step after experiencing panoramic awareness is you then need to experience the absence of center, absence of reference point. He emphasizes the sense of the environment as the first step. First, you have to get out of the, the sense of being centralized in your self. And that was sort of why I'm, uh, in the meditation I'm suggesting, you know, expanding out to the walls of the room, creating this expanded sphere of awareness, and then looking back. Uh, let's see. Once you're aware of the atmosphere, you begin to realize that thoughts are no big deal. Thoughts can just be allowed to diffuse into 
Oh, I skipped something. Sorry. As far as dealing with heavy-handed thoughts and so forth is concerned, there's no way of getting over them unless you see the reference point that is with them. By which I believe he means that heavy-handed thoughts and emotions have a very heavy sense of reference point of me. And unless you understand that meanness, that's it. That's at the root of them. That's providing the fuel for heavy-handed thoughts and emotions. You won't be able to deal with them. You won't be able to get over them. Generally, you know, we get caught by the energy of the emotion. And we don't look at the meanness that they come from. To begin with, this takes the form of awareness of the atmosphere. The spacious quality. The, the atmosphere, the spaciousness of looking at the panoramic awareness is, is a technique that's meant to provoke the experience of there still being a fixation on a center. Once you're able to do this and you, uh, and you relax into the atmosphere, you realize that thoughts are no big deal. They just diffuse into the atmosphere. This was what I was talking about earlier in the meditation about providing that larger sense of awareness and then thoughts don't drag you away anywhere. They just arise and dissolve within that spaciousness. Thus, Vipassana is understanding the whole thing. You might ask, what is this whole thing? Well, it's not particularly anything, really. <laughs> Why are you talking about it? <laughs> the whole thing is the accommodator of all the activities. It's the basic accommodation, which usually comes in the form of boredom. The practitioner is looking for something to fill the gap, particularly in the practice of Vipassana, where the quality of non-happening becomes very boring. You're actually doing Vipassana genuinely and you're looking from the outside in from the perimeter from the panorama at the center the sense of reference point it, it uh, diffuses all the wonderful habitual patterns that entertain us and it becomes very boring so there's this background of boredom. There's different types. In Vipassana, the boredom is a sense of being idle, unconditional boredom. It's not like produced by anything. It has a quality of all-pervasive cream. So he's blending together these two experiences of the, um, the knowingness, the panoramic awareness quality that really is uh, the bridge between Shamatha Vipassana and the insight that then can arise from it. Awareness relates to that type of experience. Let's see what type of experience was it. Says sitting and listening to this talk, you've developed this is a good one. You've developed a certain type of attitude. You're directing your attention to the speaker. So he's he's like probably a karma chilling early on, and they were out in a tent in the field, 
and you've you've turned your directed your attention towards him as the speaker but you also know at the same time that you and the speaker are not only people in the tent there's a sense that you're sitting in the middle of this tent in the middle of the inside of this space underneath this ocean so to speak as an analogy for the tent and awareness brings about you're relating with that particular experience which is tangible real and experiential so awareness the knowing quality knowing in a not a heavy-handed way but we're knowing where we are we're in a room or we're in a tent and there's all these people all or there's nobody here whatever it is there's this knowingness quality that goes on when a rare awareness relates to that type of experience it's called insight so when we relate to that knowing experience Sometimes it's spoken of as terms of light or luminosity. It doesn't mean fluorescent. It refers to the clarity that exists in this experience, clarity of knowing. Once you feel that basic all-pervasiveness, there is nothing else but that, the other, and this oneself is long forgotten. So thereby we're able to dissolve the center. This is just the beginning stage of Vipassana we've been describing. So he's, he's acknowledging that he's been talking about this, this sort of bridge experience between shamatha and Vipassana, the knowing quality of shamatha expanding into the possibility of Vipassana. Once more that we're not talking about hypothetically, you can actually experience that. Vipassana uh, potentials are are available all the time and then there's a few readings about the, the uh, understanding the sense of self the sense of awake related to vipassana or insight meditation in order to work with the process of meditation we have to understand our basic psychological makeup could be a long story but let's cut to the chase the mind has two aspects one is cognition the sense of meanness he describes the sense of meanness. Our mind has this quality of meanness. Not you, but me. <laughs> and he, he, he's so wonderful the way he describes this. There's a general sense of discomfort. Discomfort when we refer to ourselves as me. Very subtle discomfort. We're uncomfortable with uh, this, this meanness thing that we carry around all the time. Um, and at the same time, we're uh, sort of habituated to it. We become, we become used to it, and it becomes a sense of security. Just like, you know, this interesting phenomena where animals that are put in captivity at a certain, at a certain point they stop fighting it, and it becomes a secure thing. And you, then you like, there's these stories of such animals then being liberated, and they're like lost. It's like us, you know, we're so used to it this uh, imprisonment that we live in that we don't want to let go of me. Isn't that the idea of cocoon? Yes, we like our cocoon, that's right. The smell of our own sweat and so forth, as he says. Um, so let's see. This is the first of the two aspects of mine. We mentioned something we carry all the time. I'm afraid it's rather depressing. What a cheerful guy. Second aspect, which comes out of this, is probably known as emotions, all types. But they're not really emotions. They're just big thoughts. They're special thoughts. 
which is the Buddhist way of looking at it. Anyway, so we have these two things. And we have to analyze these two things. Vipassana is all about understanding the sense of me and mine. This first aspect of mine is occupied with duality, the basic split, sense of being fundamentally alone. And the second aspect is occupied or active. So understanding the aspects of mind is part of the process of understanding the self. That's part of the process of Vipassana. So in studying Vipassana, we're going to discuss dealing with those thought processes in the practice of meditation. But first, it's necessary for you to understand the basic ground, what the mechanism is. Who's going to meditate? And what are we going to meditate with? We're going to be talking about the way of working with thoughts with the second aspect. We have very little resources at this point for working with the first, the basic fucked upness. So he meant, he's talking about how basically meditation starts from the edges and works its way in where we start with discursive mind. We can't just go right for the meanness because we can't identify it. It, it. It's too slippery. The ego is way too slippery. So we work our way in initially. But emphasis on understanding the, the mind and how the mind is working. So then we have uh, one that's a little more pointed on this process. When we talk about meditation, we're often talking about working with the mind, but what is it? Many different views on it. If we want to find out directly what this is, we ask yourself, who's meditating? Thereby we get into the nitty-gritty to understand what we're doing when we meditate. The seed, or the fundamental question is, who are we? I found this talk so interesting that uh, it's sort of hidden in this book called Mindfulness in Action. And there's, you know, there's all these different presentations of the technique and this and that. And it's like, wow, are we really supposed to do this when we meditate and ask ourselves, who, who am I? You know, has anybody ever heard this as a technique, you know? Okay, you meditate on the breath and then you ask yourself, who am you? Who are you? <laughs> You may find you don't have an answer. From that non-answer, that simple gap or open space, you may experience a flash of who you are. That glimpse is first thought. Now, this is different than first thought, best thought, the famous name of the, the poetry book. It's very different. And that book, like first thought, is like a positive thing. It has a slant here. First thought is just sort of basic ignorance, basically. Basic sense of duality. Maybe confusion and neurosis, not necessarily pleasant. It's unconditioned reaction. There's a gap, and then there's this first thought. It's not regarded as particularly enlightened, but it's true. It's real. That's like our real meanness. It's your raw and ruggedness. Maybe shocking or quite complimentary. Don't ask questions about it. Just let it be there as your first thought. Who am I? Gap. The only way to find out who we are is just to look. There you are. <laughs> you might love it or hate it. So what? That's it. That's you. That's good old you. It's the basic mind we're talking about. Look at you and find out about you. Just look. What you find doesn't particularly lead to, you know, enlightenment or imprisonment. You know yourself already anyway. You, you realize when you look at it. 
basically points out an attitude of openness toward who you are, what you are. You may want to ask me or someone else what you discover, whether it's good or bad. My response is no comment, no further fuel to the, uh, to make it, there's no, we don't want to feed the uh, sort of preoccupation of like thinking this and that about it. This is before good and bad. We just have to find out who we are. We have to look at that. When we look inside and examine, we might discover that there is something in ourselves that feels, I am myself. You feel yourself so powerfully and strongly. There's no other choice. I feel that I am what I am. Beyond even my name, I feel my thingness inside me. I feel me. This is, you know, this is pointing out transmission, pointing out ignorance, pointing out me. You can't meditate to understand selflessness if you don't understand the sense of self. It sounds a bit like Mahamudra investigations. Oh, yeah, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) It certainly does. So, So it goes further with this. You have the strong flash of who you are, acknowledging it, and you might try to do something with it. You know, maybe you know, we could engage with the world or per people or something. He says, what is this really about? It's about discovering this, this particular point, i.e. me, this, this thing that is highly strung like a wild horse or a paranoid dog. This is in us. This is us. It's so tough and so seductive, sometimes good, sometimes wicked. We have this thing. We talk about this thing, and this thing that we're talking about is our mind, me. We're not talking about the body or our situation in life or this or that. We're talking about our mind. Oh, yes, he's actually here, you know, giving this sort of Mahamudra instruction of, like, look at the mind investigate the mind go beyond the the commentary of you know whether it's good or bad or this or that but just experience the sense of meanness uh, let's see this description of mind relates to the psychological description of ego it can be used to describe egomania which is self-indulgence and so forth trying to establish the certainty of one's um, existence it's the confused and aggressive part of ego, which is completely blind. However, there's another view of ego as intelligence, an assertive in a positive sense. When we speak about mind, we're not only talking about the negative side of ego. Mind is just awareness that exists within our being. This is co-emergence. It's awareness that is capable of relating with reference points, passion, aggression, and so forth basic idea of mind here is that which is capable of experiencing other reference points he said earlier other it's just a mechanical thing it's like using your antenna your basic mechanism Uh, so uh, your, uh, your sense of self is like a hat and you know he talks about these different ways that we our self manifests to ourselves and he says why do we have to keep telling ourselves these things again and again about like I'm this or that if everything is so amazing already there's no reason to say that why do we need to reassure ourselves this is precisely the point we feel that something is leaking 
maybe it was lacking. I don't know, but leaking. <laughs> but we don't acknowledge it as, uh, as such. There's a hole somewhere in our life that we're trying to plug up. All our posturing is a sign that we're just about to realize that we don't exist in the way we thought we did. We actually know that intuitively yeah, we keep on trying to prove ourselves to ourselves to ensure that we will survive. You know, it's like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, what am I doing here? What's going on? What is this all about? And uh, it's in, the, in meditation, it's important to admit at the, at the beginning that this fortress or shrine of our self-existence doesn't hold true. If we're honest with ourselves, we realize we're trying to turn a sandcastle into a permanent structure, but it keeps getting washed away. We keep trying to rebuild it. Many people use meditation to make themselves feel better and more uplifted. By, by using meditation, we say, oh, I can stay on top of the world. I can become a little dictator in the name of my achievement of mindfulness. <laughs> that was a good one. To avoid that thought, we have to look very closely to what mind is and how our mind functions. There are all kinds of holes. Even if we acknowledge them, we might still try to create a patchwork to cover them up. You think you've exposed yourself and become a completely pure, clean, and reasonable person penetrated all the deceptions, seen all the holes, but then if you try to sew patches over the holes by sort of having that, you know, that understanding, it becomes an endless game. And the alternative is first thought, continually looking closely and acknowledging exactly what's happening. When you practice meditation, you need to understand your motivation and look at what you were doing. How are you going to work with yourself? Exposing oneself to oneself without pretense and without patches is the real working ground and a genuine motive for practice. So we'll end there for tonight since we're already over time a little bit. And as a group, we'll try to remember that we'll start next week on mixing mind with a, with a place, mixing mind with a place or something like that. Any final comments, suggestions, announcements, questions? Have I bored you all to tears? Ah, Andrew. It feels like so many of these questions that, like, you know, these investigative style questions that he references and maybe some of the other people, like, it feels like some of them have answers and some of them don't. Like, they're, like, the who am I? It's not, like, the intentional, like, blank spot, you know, afterwards. But then other ones have, like, a more, I guess, like, a definite a direction. So that, that whole process, to me, um, has always had a bit of confusion because a lot of times these questions and the amateur versions that I get exposed to um, or I'm brave enough to face, typically have a silence afterwards, which is not quite the same as totally going through some scientific process, so to speak, and and, and appealing an onion, you know? Whereas a lot of times just blank, just wind blowing after I ask a question. What do you make of all that? Uh, I <laughs> thought that was fine for a long time until I realized from these 
these studies that there was uh, all kinds of answers that I should have been having, you know? <laughs> I was a lot more comfortable with the emptiness. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Anya, why are you smiling? I see you smiling. What, what's going on? Why are you laughing at what he's saying? Um, yeah, it just makes sense to me, I guess. But that some of them have answers and some of them don't? Yeah, yeah. What, 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 what is the idea of, uh, is, is the idea, you know, why do some have answers and some have don't? Some have don't. Some don't. Skillful means. So uh, are, are the ones with answers trying to point out one thing and the ones without answers trying to point out something else? I don't think so. So they're both, both pointing out the same thing in a different way. Yeah. Are they both pointing to the answer? What's the know. answer, Eric? You nodded. What's the answer? <laughs> Nada. Nada. Uh, there is no answer. The answer, yeah, can't be put into words or anything. So, I mean, it sounds like we're just talking about the analytic approach and the intuitive approach, right? I mean, is it that the analytical <laughs> approach finds answer has answers? In right, you unpeel the onion conceptually. And then the intuitive approach, you just look at your mind and there's no one can tell you what you're going to see or experience when you do that. Mm. Like no one can, there's no guarantees when you look at your own life. What's, yeah. <laughs> What's going to be revealed? Anyone yeah. else? Cynthia, what do you make of all this? You're chuckling up a storm over there. Uh, I was just thinking about how, I mean, I don't remember exactly what your last question was about, but I, I, it made me think of the, when you are doing the first kind of things that you're trying to analyze or whatever, people tend to have that short circuit experience of it just the mind sort of short circuits and just can't figure anything out, you know, um, but that in itself is an experience that's valuable. That's cool. I, I think there's something to the uh, the fact that of like the way that Rimshe presents presents the the exercise in this last reading. He just keeps saying over and over again, "What? What does he keep saying over and over again?" In the last, yeah, Jane. What does he keep saying over and over? Who Who am I? Who are you? Does does he uh, when you say it like that? You're you're asking me. You're saying he's asking us. Who who am I? Ask yourself. Right. Right. He, right. He just keeps saying over and over again. Look, look, and ask yourself, who am I? And I like um, the way he says somewhere. Just look at that. Yeah, just, just look. And that's a phrase that's... Uh, that's what he keeps repeating most, is just looking. So sometimes they give answers and sometimes they know they don't. The important part is... The, just the looking. Just the looking. <laughs> the important part is the looking. That's the exercise. The looking is what's important. 
And I think because in our culture, we're so, you know, we're educated and we think that there should be an answer. Right. So, what's the, what are we looking for? And here we're looking for being an answer. For the sake of looking. Yeah. And so we can actually miss the whole experience in that way. Yeah. So possible. So look, just look, look. Is he look talking? The, sorry. Is he talking about during sitting practice? I, mean, I think he I, was. I think it was pretty clear he was talking about, like, when you're meditating, ask yourself who's meditating. Because Look. sometimes sometimes I'm not sure in some of the readings what's being referred to. I know, I know, but I thought this one was pretty clear that he was actually saying in meditation. You know, yeah, ask what happens when we meditate? Yeah. This is what we should do. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah that's very yeah. precise instruction. So I thought this one was great in that way because, yes, many many presentations by him and others are are generalized in a way where you, you're not sure that it's actually in meditation. But here, I think it's very clear when you meditate, you're looking, what's going on? Who's meditating? And uh, also the, the crux of it is looking at the looker. Who's looking? Who's, you know, he says, who's meditating? You know, your meditation is consists of looking, and who's doing that looking? <laughs> and whether you come up with an answer or not, it's sort of bullshit. You know, the the answer is does not do anything. It's the looking that. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you. That was good. And, and so let us uh, dedicate and close. By this marriage, may all ten missions made to feed the enemy wrongdoing, from the stormy waves to birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. And one last thing, if I can quickly, is that, you know, length of time, you know, years, months, weeks, de depression, anticipation, ambition. Um, it's, uh, um, there's, there's two parts to it. One is understanding, understanding the process. And understanding what we've just been going through, like, you know, understanding what is myself and how do I look, how do we do this process of looking at the self, understanding what is stillness and how does that differ from Vipassana? How does it differ from looking? Those things are very helpful and they speed up the process of shifting from Shama to Vipassana. But then there's our karmic inheritance, our karmic momentum. And it's very hard to wear out our karmic momentum by understanding, by, by having better and better understanding. But you can, you know, like people, some people practice all the time. They go on retreat and they practice a lot. And so, you know, retreat practice is so helpful. Practicing all day for a day. You know, and so there's this uh, profound treasury thing that called the profound treasury. I guess they have some pretty good treasures in that 
box there. And uh, they're going to do a Nintum online on March 27th, which is a Saturday. I urge you to uh, join in if you can. Carolyn Gimian is going to give some uh, remarks during the day. And uh, these days there's not that many retreats, but you know if you can, do retreat when you can. It's vaguely possible that Westchester Meditation Center may have a retreat this summer. So fingers crossed. Thank you. Good night. Bye. See you soon. Be well. Take care. Thank you, Derek. Thank you very much.